Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 25 and 26. And it's hard to believe that we are winding down our study in the book of Acts. By God's grace, next week is going to be the last sermon in the book of Acts. And uh, we started about a year ago under the tents, if you'll remember. And as you can see with the graphic, we've entitled our series, Acts, The Gospel Unleashed. And you know, the reason that we named it that is because Acts is a historical book that accounts uh, accounts how the church came into being how it was planted in the very beginning, how when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he promised that he was going to send his Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit came down, it descended upon the first century church and what happened? Well, the church exploded and the gospel was unleashed. And I love how all throughout the book of Acts, it talks about how the word of God advanced, how the word of God kept increasing. And in Acts chapter 2 verse 47, I love this part, this verse that's in that we find here. It says, "And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." You know, this passage right here is talking about numerical growth. God adding to his church by people getting saved. And you know, there are basically three ways that God causes a church to grow. Number one, he causes numerical growth by transfer growth. This is when sheep shuffle from one church to another. Secondly, he grows his church numerically by biological growth. This is when disciples of Jesus have children and they multiply. And then there's a third conversion growth. And that's what I want to look at this morning. This is actually what was happening all throughout the book of Acts. This is when people are being saved. They come to Jesus for the first time. And, you know, I believe that this is an area that we all can agree on that we want to see happen in our church. We want to see people come to Jesus. But the question I want to ask this morning or or that I want to answer this morning is how does conversion growth actually happen? Well, the primary way that conversion growth happens is through what we call active evangelism. Now, I know that that word evangelism can carry a lot of baggage with it. So let me give you the definition that I think is uh, really good. This is what I want you to understand I'm talking about this morning. And it's a definition that comes from a, a pastor named Mac Stiles. He says, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. And and I really like this definition because of two words in it, the word teaching and the word persuade. Now, when we are, are, are sharing the gospel, we need to be teaching the gospel. And our goal needs to be to teach in such a way the truth that persuades people, not pressures them, doesn't manipulate them, but persuades them based upon the information to put their faith in Jesus. And this is extremely important for us to understand as a church. Because when I read the Gospels, I don't ever see Jesus putting pressure on people to come to Him. I don't see Him manipulating them. Rather, He 
he tells people, come to me, examine me, and then count the costs. Make a decision, a sober decision, whether or not you want to follow me. And that, that's what we're going to see Paul doing today in our passage. But before we get there, uh, I want to recap what's been going on uh, in the book of Acts for the past few weeks. And if you'll remember, Paul has just finished his third missionary journey. And he goes up to Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit told him you're going to be persecuted. And sure enough, a group of Jews that, that don't believe in Jesus, they begin and they start a riot with uh, the people in the city of Jerusalem, and they begin beating Paul so badly that he has to be rescued by some Gentiles. Actually, they are Roman military Gentiles. They, they arrest Paul and they take him into custody. Now, long story short, because we've already gone over this, the Roman tribune ends up transferring Paul from Jerusalem. He takes him all the way to Caesarea in order to protect Paul from the Jews. And while Paul is there, he meets this guy or this uh, governor whose name was Felix. And Felix listens to Paul's case and discovers that Paul has done nothing that is deserving of death. He realizes that Paul is innocent. But instead of letting him go, instead of re releasing him, he keeps him in prison for two years. And I think there's two reasons that he does this. Number one, again, he knows that Paul is innocent. So he seeks to protect uh, Paul from the Jews. If he let Paul out, he knows that the Jews were going to kill him. Secondly, he keeps Paul in prison because he wants to keep the peace with Rome and the Jews. The tensions between the, uh, the Romans and the Jews was escalating in six years. From this point in the, in the book of the, uh, of the Bible, there is going to be a revolt of the Jews against Rome, which is not going to go well for the Jews. 1.1 million Jews will be massacred by the Romans. But there is a tension here, and I believe that Felix wants to keep the peace between Rome and the Jews. So he keeps him there for two years, but something happens at the end of the two years, and that is that Felix gets removed by um, the emperor Nero. He gets summoned to Rome and he never returns. He's actually succeeded by a new governor whose name that we're going to find out in our passage today is Portius Festus in Acts 25. And so Festus, being the new kid on the block, he seeks to keep the peace with the Jews, just like Felix did, while also attempting to understand Paul's situation. And I'm going to summarize um, chapter 25, much of 25, so that we can get to chapter 26 today. But what happens is that Festus allows Paul to stand before him and, and give his defense. And just like Felix, Festus comes to, to the conclusion, the, the right conclusion, that Paul is innocent, that he does not deserve to, to die. But Festus decides that he wants to ride the fence and try to do the Jews a favor. So he says to Paul, hey, you want to go back to Jerusalem or back down to Jerusalem and get tried there before the Jews? And what does Paul say? He says, no way. There is no way I'm going back down to Jerusalem because I know that I won't get a fair trial. I know that they're going to try to kill me. And so what does Paul do? He says, I appeal to Caesar. And you know who he was appealing to? He was appealing to the infamous Emperor Nero. It's important to understand here what's going on. Paul would rather go before a wicked emperor, the emperor who took Christians and put them on stakes and used them as lights to light up. He lit them on fire as lights in his garden. He would rather be tried 
by him than by his own brothers. And so he appeals to Caesar. And in chapter 25, verse 12, we read, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, before we move forward, I need to explain who King Agrippa is. Actually, King Agrippa is King Agrippa II, and Bernice is his biological sister. They are the children of who? King Agrippa I. And if, if you remember, King Agrippa I, he was the one who was responsible for the death of James back in Acts chapter 12. He also arrested Peter and put him in prison before an angel came and rescued Peter out of uh, of jail. He's also the same uh, King Agrippa who was eaten by worms and died because he did not give to glory to God when the people were worshiping him. Now King Agrippa I, his father was King Herod Antipas. And he was, you might remember, he was the one that was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. Now his father was Herod the Great. And he was, he was the one that was responsible for massacring the baby boys who were under, under the age of two back in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. So what we see here is that King Agrippa II and Bernice are descendants from a wicked line of rulers. And they have come to Caesarea. And while they're in Caesarea, they're visiting Festus. And Festus decides that while they're there, that he's going to lay Paul's case before him. And uh, King Agrippa agrees to hear Paul's defense. And one of the things that I think is interesting here is that Paul is going to share the gospel to them. This is, we need to see that this is God's mercy, or this was God's mercy to them, to try to get them to turn to Jesus and to be forgiven of their sins. So let's pick up in verse 23 and see what happens. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But... I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But listen to this. He says, But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now, understand what's going on here. Festus is saying, I'm sending Paul, an innocent man, to Nero, to Caesar. But the problem is I don't have any charges to send with him, and, and I don't know what to say. So it says that Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now, this is the third time that Paul's testimony is recorded in the book of Acts. So I'm not going to go over all of it. I'm going to summarize it, and then we'll get into uh, the passage in verse 15. But 
From here on, Paul begins, just like he did in his last testimony, he begins by giving his credentials, letting uh, King Agrippa know that he is a fully educated Jewish Pharisee who totally, at one time, totally hated the, the Christians. And he hated them so much that in a fury, he persecuted them, not just in Jerusalem, but he went out into other foreign cities chasing them. And on his way to Damascus, as he was going to get some Christians, Paul once again talks about how he was knocked down to the ground by what he calls a light from heaven that was brighter than the sun. And in verses 15 to 23, we're going we're gonna to read these verses right now. We're going to see what it looks like. Paul is going to teach us what a healthy evangelist looks like by what he does. So remember, he falls to the ground. And when he falls to the ground, he hears a voice. He hears the voice of Jesus. And in verse 15, he said, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Why is he sending him to the Gentiles? Here it is, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then in verse 19, Paul continues. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, that is, to turn from sin, and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. Verse 21, for this reason, in other words, because I was preaching the gospel, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass and that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, there are four gospel truths in this passage that we just read that I think are going to be helpful for us as we are seeking to be true and healthy evangelists. And the first gospel truth that I want us to see here is that a healthy evangelist understands that Jesus is Lord. A healthy evangelist understands that Jesus is Lord. Let's look at verse 15 again. This is Paul speaking. He said, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Now, now what does that mean for someone to be Lord? Well, someone who is Lord is, is able to exercise authority and power and control over others. And Jesus is Lord over all things. He's, he's Lord over all things, whether we admit it or not. It's like gravity. You know, gravity exists whether you believe it or not. But you might say, well, I don't believe in gravity. I believe I can fly. 
You might say, I, I believe I can touch the sky. You might even dream about it every night and day and you want to you want to spread your wings and try to fly away but let me just tell you if you go to the top of a tall building like maybe the empire states building and you go to the edge and look down and you take a step forward you are going to immediately begin to believe in gravity but the, you know what the problem is the problem is it will be too late you should have believed in gravity before you took that step but you know, we need to understand that reality doesn't align itself with what we believe. Therefore, we must align what we believe with reality. Otherwise, we'll suffer the consequences. And in a similar way, like gravity, right now, you may not believe that Jesus is Lord. That may not be reality to you. But you know what the reality is? is that Jesus conquered death. That's reality. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death and therefore He is Lord. And we Christians know that Scripture teaches that there is coming a day where every knee is going to bow before Jesus and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. That is a reality. And because we know this church, we need to seek to persuade others to joyfully and willingly bow their knee before Jesus before it's too late because there is coming a day when everyone is going to confess it and it's either going to be in this life joyfully and willingly or it's going to be at the on the day of judgment when it's against your will but one one day every knee is going to bow before the Lord and every tongue is going to acknowledge in truth that Jesus is Lord but there's a question that we need to ask church ourselves on a daily basis is that true in our lives is jesus lord he is lord but is jesus our lord now how do you know how do you know if jesus is lord in your life well jesus answers that for us in luke 6 46 when he says why do you call me lord why do you call me lord and not do what i say in other words why are you calling me your lord and you're not obeying me the proof that Jesus is Lord in your life is that you obey Him. So a healthy evangelist, number one, understands that Jesus is Lord, and number two, obediently delivers the message under His Lordship. Now, it's interesting in this passage that Jesus doesn't ask Paul what he thinks about his plan before he gives it to him. Let's look at verse 16. Jesus says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. A servant has a Lord. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people. I'm going to deliver you from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Look at this. To whom I am sending you. I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Just as Paul's eyes were opened, Jesus is sending Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Why? So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Jesus is basically saying, look, when you obediently deliver the message that I'm giving to you, I'm going to open eyes. I'm going to bring people from darkness to light, from death to life. And we need to know what the good news is. We need to know what the good news is that Jesus wants us to, to deliver to our friends, our families, our co-workers, those who we are around. And this is the message. This is the good news right here. It's that though we were a rebellious people, though we turned our backs on God and shook our fist at Him and said, we're going to do it our way, God, in His mercy, sent His Son down for us. And He sent Him to be punished in our place. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus is God's answer to our greatest problem. Now let me ask you this. What do you think your greatest problem is? You know what our greatest problem church was? Our greatest problem was God. The wrath of God. Because the wrath of God, because of our sin, was focused on us. But Jesus came down and He stood between us and God on the cross and He absorbed the wrath of God that was meant for us. He absorbed all of it upon Himself. He drank fully the bitter cup of death that was meant for us. He took that upon Himself so that we would not have to, to be punished, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That is the good news. That is the gospel, that Jesus died, that He was buried, that He rose again, that He ascended into heaven, and that He's coming back. And, and what Jesus is saying is, if you will obediently teach this message, when people receive it, when they believe it, their eyes are going to be open. They're going to go from darkness to light, from death to life, just like you all have. And if we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear because our sins have been fully paid for. If you receive it, if you believe. And one thing I want to make sure that I'm clear about is that, that we have to be careful that we do not fumble the message of the gospel um, there can be a, a temptation to either add to the gospel, uh, say things that the gospel doesn't say, promise things that the gospel is not promising, or to take away from the gospel message, thinking that you know, we can somehow make the, the gospel message more appealing, we can make it more relevant to others. But that's just not true. The gospel is perfect in the way that it has been uh, presented by God. And this week... Um, when I was reading in our New Testament reading, some of you may not know this, but we are reading together through the New Testament, some of us in the church. We have a reading plan. If you want to join us, you can go on our website and download it. But this week we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in verse 17 and 18, I want you to hear what Paul says about the gospel. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And look at this, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. In other words, not to add or take away from the gospel. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, if you change the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. And if it's no longer the gospel, it does not have the power to save. It loses its power. Verse 18, he says, for the word of the cross is folly. That means stupid. Um, unreasonable to those who are perishing. Those who have rejected the gospel, it doesn't make sense to them. But to us, church, who are being saved, it is what? The power 
of God. Let us not forget that. Let us not forget the God that we serve. Let us not forget that our God is infinitely wise, that he knows what he is doing. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul basically says that God's foolishness, if that were a thing, God's foolishness is greater than man's wisdom. He also says that God's weakness, if that were a thing, if that even existed, God's weakness is greater, is stronger than man's strength. God, listen church, we need to remember, we serve a God that knows what he is doing. And the gospel message works if we will just obediently deliver it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we don't need to tinker with it. We don't need to try to change it and make it any better. But we need to obediently deliver the message of the gospel, knowing that at times, and this is gospel truth number three, that an evangelist will be misunderstood. As we share the gospel, there is going to be times that we are misunderstood. And again, Paul says that there are, there are those who think that the cross is foolish. The ones who have rejected the gospel think that the, the message of the gospel doesn't make sense. It's crazy. And someone once said that those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. And I want you to think about that. Have you ever seen somebody wearing headphones listening to music or they're in their car listening to music and they are moving around and dancing but you can't hear the music? You can agree with this statement that they look crazy. They look like they're out of their minds. Well, in our scenario, Jesus is the music that the world cannot hear. And the reason that the world cannot hear it is because they do not believe. And so when they see Christians believing in the gospel, they misunderstand us in this way that they think the followers of Jesus, those who have put their hope in a savior that we cannot see with our eyes, they think we are out of our minds. They, they, they totally misunderstand us. This is what happens to Paul in our passage. Let's look at verse 24. And as Paul was saying these things, as he was preaching the gospel to King Agrippa, as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now listen, Paul had just spoken the truth. He told something that was true. He said, I saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus is really alive. He spoke from truth. And yet, what does Festus do? Festus thinks that he's out of his mind. He misunderstands what's going on because Festus doesn't believe. He can't hear the music because he doesn't believe. And he accuses Paul of something that's not true. He says, you're out of your mind. That's what's going to happen to us when we preach the gospel and people don't believe. They're going to think we're out of our mind. Paul was misunderstood, and so will we be at times. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I love how he graciously doesn't back down. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now, Paul is about to call King Agrippa 
to make a decision. And this is something that we all need to understand. You can't stay neutral on this, on this truth that Jesus has risen from the dead and that He is Lord and that He's calling us all to Himself. We have to at some point make a decision. You're either going to come under His leadership, believe in Him, and submit to Him joyfully and be forgiven of, of your sins, or you're going to reject the offer that He is giving all of us. And that's what Paul is about to do here. Look at verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I love that the way he says that. I know that you believe. Verse 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Do you think I'm going to become a Christian that quickly? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. I love Paul. I, I love his hopefulness. I love his passion. Basically, what he's saying is, I want you, yes, King Agrippa, I want you to believe, but I want everyone here to hear the music. I want everyone to understand the gospel, that God loves you, that he cares about you. Even though we didn't care about him, he cares about us, and he sent his son to save us. And, you know, Paul understands that Jesus is Lord. And so he obediently delivers the message, knowing that he will possibly be misunderstood, just like he is in this passage. And, and this leads us to our fourth and final gospel truth, he understands that he needs to leave the results up to God. Paul understands that an evangelist leaves the results up to God after being obedient to deliver the message. And, you know, that's where we've got to trust God. We've got to trust God knowing that we do not have the power within ourselves to save anyone. It is God who has the power. It is the Holy Spirit that ultimately takes what we preach, what we teach, and persuades an individual to come to Jesus. In other words, salvation begins with God and salvation ends with God. And therefore, we can leave the results up to God. Now, in closing, I have two points of application that I want to share. And at the beginning of this message, I mentioned that God grows the church in three ways. Number one is through transfer growth. The second is biological growth. And the third is conversion growth, which, which I've been basically talking about this morning, conversion growth. And, and I've been praying that God will, will grow us in all three three areas. I think they're both, all three of them are healthy areas that we need to grow in. But there's something about people coming to Jesus for the first time that is exciting and that is explosive and that I have been praying for in our church. And in order for that to happen in our church, salvations, uh, in, in order for salvations to take place, people have to hear the gospel. They have to understand it and they have to have, a, have a, a point where they can decide whether they believe it and want to receive the gospel. But you know, in order for people to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, they have to first be taught the gospel. And here's how I want us as a church to take two steps. This is the, the two-point application I want to I give us. And that is, we need to pray and obey. We need to pray for who, you might ask. You might say, oh, you mean we need to pray for the lost. Well, 
We do, but that's not what I want us to look at this morning. Jesus says in Matthew 9, I want you to listen to what Jesus says. He's been ministering to the masses. And in verse 36, Matthew says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion or he had empathy or concern for them because they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, look at this. This is so encouraging. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There is a a great harvest to be had, but there's a problem. The laborers are not many. They're, They're few. Verse 38, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. What? What does Jesus want us to pray? To send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I want us to notice something here. I want us to notice that Jesus is not complaining or blaming the culture. He he doesn't do that. And he also doesn't tell us to pray that sinners will come to us so that we can share the gospel to them. No, he says, pray that the workers will get up and go out into the fields where the harvest is plentiful. Now, we need to understand that because Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful if only the church would get up and go. And and I want you to think about this. What would happen? What will happen if we pray and we go? What will happen if we pray and be obedient? I want to tell a quick story and then I'm going to close. I was recently at a pastor's conference and um, the speaker there was sharing about how his church had taken this passage and decided to go out and pray in communities, to pray in neighborhoods. And as they met people that God put in their past, they began to speak to people and to pray for them and, and to share the gospel. And he said that once they started doing that, literally the next week, someone got saved in their church and that people began to get saved. But he paused and he said, you know, but the the interesting thing about this is that those who were getting saved were not those who were in the neighborhoods where we prayed. We don't know where these people actually came from. And the point that he was trying to make or that he was making is that there are times that God is just wanting us to be obedient to what he has commanded us to and then to allow him to do what he will do to to leave the results up to him sometimes he doesn't do things until we obey and so this morning i want to close by encouraging us to start by number one praying number one pray for yourself and here are three things i want you to pray for yourself number one pray that you will have compassion for the lost In other words, pray that you will care about lost people. Secondly, that you would pray for a desire to go out into the fields so that we can be a part of what God is doing. And number three, pray that God will help you to be obedient and to go out into the field. Not just to have a desire, but to act upon that desire and to go out into the fields. And I know that there's no doubt that our church wants to see people come to Jesus. But it's not going to happen by accident. 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers have got to go out. So let's begin. Let's take a step. Let's begin by praying for ourselves. Pray for our church. Pray that we will be obedient and that we will learn how to persuasively teach the gospel so that people can understand the good news. They can examine Jesus for themselves and decide whether or not they want to follow him. Let's leave the results up to God and know that we have been obedient disciples. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, when uh, you were on earth, you looked at the crowds and the, the scriptures say that you had compassion for the lost, that you wanted them to come to you. And Lord, we know that that's your desire today because you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Your, your desire is to see those who are rebellious come to you. Lord, that's what you did in our lives. You called us to yourself. And so, Lord, I'm asking you that you would help us to believe your word. Help us to believe that the, the, the harvest is indeed plentiful. We know that the laborers are few. So, Lord, we lay ourselves before you. We ask you to help us to repent of our sluggishness, of our disobedience. We pray that you would give us desires, new desires in our heart, that we would have a heart for those who do not know you, that we would want to see them uh, turn from darkness to light, from death to life. Lord, give us that desire within ourselves and the power to go out and to make friends and build relationships for your glory and our benefit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.